morning and welcome in to the show. It is Daniel Wartman coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 8 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 5 a.m. really early, early morning wake-up call. Thanks for tuning in, as always, to the show. A lot to get to this morning. Uh, yesterday was the NWSL final, continuing to build off of the momentum gained from this summer's uh, World Cup, where the U.S. Women's National Team won their uh, second consecutive World Cup this summer, 2015, in Canada, 2019, in France. Building some momentum this summer, and uh, the NWSL has has been able to reap some of those rewards. The uh, North Carolina Courage took on the Chicago Red Stars in the NWSL final, winning 4-0 to win its second straight NWSL title. Uh, the final took place in Cary, North Carolina, where Dabinia scored in the fourth minute, and the North Carolina Courage went on to beat the Chicago Red Stars 4-0 on Sunday. Jessica McDonald, Crystal Dunn, and Sam Mewis added goals for the Courage, who won the NWSL Shield for the third straight year with a league-best 15-5-4 regular season record. The Courage beat Rain FC 4-1 in extra time in the semifinals. The Red Stars had a six-game winning streak heading into the final, including a 1-0 victory over the Portland Thorns in their semifinal. And uh, big, big day. Congratulations to the North Carolina Courage. Um, in in winning their second consecutive um, final, NWSL final. Dabinia was named the game's MVP. Um, the game capped an eventful week for the league. Chicago Sam Kerr was named the league's most valuable player uh, for this season after scoring a record 18 goals in just 21 games. The Australian Ford was absent for part of the season because of the Women's World Cup. There were quite a few players out, which is which has been some uh, consternation uh, with the with the women uh, for the U.S. Women's National Team as well, missing a lot of matches in the NWSL. There's a there's a simple fix for this, uh, and it's the same thing that Major League Soccer uh, and the USL run into as well. Their schedules are out of alignment with FIFA and and kind of national team windows. It's a self-inflicted uh, issue, um, and and it's an issue that you know has an easy solution. People make make this out. We've talked about this on the show before. People make this out to be a really complicated. Um, you know, problem to solve, and it's really not. Major League Soccer and the NWSL play a spring to fall calendar, and they play right through the heart of the summer break as well as the the international 
windows and calendars. Uh, so this summer you have the, the Women's World Cup taking place in France, and you have Major League Soccer in the NWSL, just like the summer before when the, the Men's World Cup was in Russia and, and the MLS was running into, into this issue. This summer it was the Gold Cup uh, where the, the MLS was running into this issue as well. They're, they're trying to play league matches and continue a league season during what is essentially national team season. So you do have players that are out players that are playing for their national teams playing in, you know, in the world cup, they're, they're playing in exhibition matches. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that you have these overlapping schedules and it's self-inflicted the Federation, the U.S. Soccer Federation, could easily put a stop to this and just mandate that during any international breaks, including World Cups, etc., that the domestic leagues at the highest levels are not allowed to play. So if you still want to bang your head against the wall and play a spring-to-fall calendar... You can do so, but you're going to have to plan around this. The The better solution is rather than trying to put the NWSL final up against the NFL and the World Series, why don't you have your league start in the fall, finish in the spring, where most are not watching Major League Baseball and that's the primary competition. You do have a little NBA, but nothing that you could not overcome. Needless to say, um, it was it was a good day for the NWSL, but it, it I think it could have been better. And um, it just you know is is one of those issues I think that, that the federation needs to step up and be the federation. But as we know, we talk about on the show all of the time, um, the Federation doesn't seem to be that interested in being the Federation. They seem to be more interested in serving the interest of, uh, or the special interest of, of a few. Um, today, big press conference, uh, piggybacking there on the NWSL for the U.S. Women's National Team. The Reigns, Vlatko Andonovsky, who is named the league's coach of the year is expected to be named. It's just kind of been leaked over the last few days as the new coach of the U S national team at a news conference today in New York, replacing Jill Ellis, who rides off into the sunset with back-to-back world cup titles. Um, it was also the the last game yesterday for North Carolina Courage midfielder Heather O'Reilly. The uh, the former national team star is retiring from professional soccer and joining the staff of the women's team at North Carolina. O'Reilly retired from the national team back in 2016, finishing with 231 caps and 47 goals, along with a 2015 World Cup trophy and three Olympic gold medals. She's also got an FA Cup from her time with Arsenal and two College Cup trophies from her time at North Carolina. 
A sellout crowd of 10,227 attended the championship yesterday. So, look, big day for the NWSL final. Now we've got the the women's national team uh, coach announcement press conference today. Uh, so more uh, more news there, and, and we'll see how that uh, shapes up as well. But um, I wanted to make sure we started the show, given proper due, where it needed to be for um, for for the start of this week and, and for this show uh, with the NWSL final taking place yesterday. Um, and I, I do think there's some some things the league needs to to do better at, and and it's not an NWSL only issue. This is a this is really born out of uh, the U.S. Soccer Federation. The NWSL, when it was created a few years ago, could have easily started in a fall to spring calendar, but the the federation has been obsessed with going against everything else the world does in the Northern Hemisphere in terms of trying to play fall to spring and comply with FIFA calendar windows, etc. I don't understand it, um, but uh, it, it, it they, they keep doing what they've always been doing, expecting different results, and, uh, and this is another area where they could have easily gotten it right, and they didn't, and I think the NWSL, as well as Major League Soccer and the USL, need to, uh, to revisit um, that whole setup and situation. I think it would make for much more excitement finishing these finals up in the spring, just like what we see in Europe, I think it would also add a, a layer of legitimacy in the fans' minds, which is a which is not something that we we've talked a lot about. You know, honoring FIFA dates and and working around you know a winter break, etc. We've talked through some of those the specific parameters, but American soccer fans have access to to probably more soccer on TV than, than most countries in the world. We have packages and access to every top league in the world. And when you compare that quality on the field, the quality of the production with what we see domestically, obviously it, it doesn't add up. And, and the major league soccer and NWSL uh, TV numbers bear that out however one of the things i don't think we've discussed enough is due to that access that american soccer has i think it would i think it would help major league soccer and the nwsl if they were playing a similar calendar as the rest of the world because i think it would it would feel like Okay, we've graduated. We're 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 playing like legit soccer now. We're we're playing like the same calendar as France and Italy and Spain and England. Um and I think in the in the you know, if you even if you didn't change the single table format you know, to, if if you didn't change to that format and you stayed with the playoff format, I still think it would help and help TV numbers and help um, with with fans as well. The summer window is just brutal as well for TV numbers. There's a reason why uh, traditionally, even before like digital media, new tech kind of hit uh, 
over the last uh, five to 10 years. There's a reason why most of your major shows, you had your fall sweeps and then you had your spring schedule and then the summers were filled with just, you know, random type of programming. It was not a peak viewing audience. People expected uh, the population at large to be, you know, on vacations or busy and outdoors and other things. So, you know, your kind of primetime programming was always based around fall, you know, September-ish through the fall and then picking up in January, February and finishing out in, in, in late spring. Our football that we see around the world follows that same kind of, you know, path. For whatever reason, we keep thinking that we can make soccer fit in a window that just doesn't seem to work. And uh, and I think that's an issue that we need to we, we need to take a look at at a federation level to set parameters on that and say, hey, these things have to be enforced and and we've got to do a better job of taking care of that as well. Um, our sponsor this half hour is Ducktick Brand, D-U-K-T-I-G Brand.com. Now, if you have not gone there and done some shopping, shame on you. You should, uh, you should go get you a beanie. They've got some other apparel available. Their coaching notebooks, invaluable. And use promo code DWSHOW and you'll get 10% off of your next order as well. Check them out at ducktigbrand.com, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com, and use promo code DWSHOW to get 10% off of your next order. We'll be right back after this. show thanks for tuning in this monday morning october the 28th hope you had a great weekend 
It was a weekend to celebrate the NWSL and the NWSL final and the momentum that's kept reading a lot of, you know, positive, favorable coverage and comments about the league and the progress and feeling like we've turned a corner. And I don't disagree. It was a good weekend for the NWSL. It was not a great weekend for U.S. soccer. Yet another um, another moment of truth for the U.S. national team program. We had the uh, the U seventeen World Cup begin, and uh, yesterday our U seventeen youth national team. The boys' national team played Senegal and were crushed, humiliated, four-one. It was uh, it was really bad. The score doesn't even tell the story of ineptitude on the field. It was a horrible display. Uh, and, you know, looking at the struggles of the men's national team, this is where kind of the, the next generation at that U-17 level getting into U-20s and into the Olympic program, you know, this is where this next crop of players should be. This is where, where we should be looking at, you know, finding uh, that next next generation of talent and um it just it doesn't look good. Um, definitely, you know, disturbing. And it's not losing a game. Don't get me wrong. I mean, at this level, winning is not even necessary or that important. It it's more about what is your philosophy? What is your methodology as a federation? What are you training and teaching players to play? And then looking at, okay, how are they executing on that philosophy and methodology? Are they developing well? And do they have an identity? Do they have a way that they want to play? Mistakes are fine. We want to obviously eliminate or reduce the, the number and amount of mistakes made, but what we're really looking for is the fact that we want you to play a certain way. We want you to learn that way. And, and, and as a whole, you watch this national youth national team play and it looks very much like their senior counterparts just kind of lost. Um, no real idea about how to break an opponent down, keep possession, play without the ball, in all phases of the game, just completely outmatched. Senegal Senegal looked really good, especially on the counter. And it was as if this team just had no idea how to combat that. When you have relied for so long on bigger, faster, stronger, and you come up against a, an opponent that can can match you in that category or best you in that category and then couple that with the fact that they have some individual players technically 
and tactically more astute, you're in trouble. And we saw that yesterday, 4-1, a really, really bad defeat to start off this World Cup, U-17 World Cup. And, you know, I think I think that we've got to, you know, we talk about the men's national team a lot and the struggles and the failures and all of that. It's the job of, of Ernie Stewart to oversee the development from the ground up. And we don't even have coaches. We don't have coaches. Like, go check the rosters. There's no full-time coaches. How are we going to develop a philosophy and a methodology and have a program that's running and feeding into our senior team and we don't even have coaches? It took us a year to announce the hiring of Greg Berhalter, even though we knew that's who we were hiring. And we look at the youth national teams and we've got one coach. For all the youth national teams on the boys' side, it's it's absurd. It it just seems like the federation really isn't that interested in in doing the soccer part of being the federation. Certainly not interested in doing it with excellence and doing it well. And it doesn't is this isn't rocket science. Figure out how you want to play. Try to go find the best candidates to do it. Pay them. And resource them. And over five or ten years, that should lead to improvement. Just like the calendar, the Federation just seems to not be able to figure out simple things. I don't know if it's because they're incapable or if they're unwilling, but in either case, it's got to get better. Speaking of having to get better, Southampton players coaches to donate wages to charity after their Leicester humiliation. Southampton players and coaching staff have pledged to donate their wages from Friday's humiliating 9-0 defeat by Leicester City to the club's charitable foundation in an attempt to put things right with their supporters. Leicester recorded the biggest English top flight away win by thrashing 10-man Southampton at St. Mary's with hat tricks from Perez and Vardy helping to inflict Saints' worst home defeat in their 133-year history. The squad has been working on putting things right for the club's supporters, Southampton said in a statement. As the first step towards that, the group has decided that they wish to donate their wages from the day of the Leicester game to Saints Foundation in order to help the vital work that is conducted by the charity. Not a good look for Southampton. That was a really bad loss. The players would look to make further amends in the upcoming doubleheader against Manchester City, who Southampton faced first in the League Cup on Tuesday and then in the Premier League on Saturday. Saints manager Ralph Hassenhuddle said his team would not stay up 
the season until they found a way to improve. We must know that when we play like this, we have no chance to stay in this league. That is for sure. Everybody knows this. It's about us now to try and find a way to do better than this. The defeat since Southampton, who lost Ryan Bertrand to an early red card into the relegation zone, while Leicester stayed third in the table, eight points behind leaders Liverpool. Listen to the, the, the manager there. He, he, he's Southampton's manager. We must know that when we play like this, we have no chance to stay in this league. That is for sure. Everybody knows this. It's about us now to try and find a way to do better than this. That is the beauty of sporting merit. If you are terrible, you have to buckle up and get better. Playoffs, making the playoffs doesn't motivate near on, on, the, on a visceral level for the players, the coaches, or the supporters, or the front office, everyone involved. It does not motivate near on the same level as sporting merit, promotion and relegation. It matters. Having to prove yourself on the field matters. I do like the fact that the manager and the players were willing to donate their wages from the day to the team's foundation. That's accountability. I wish U.S. soccer would learn what that is. I think Greg Berhalter should be donating some wages from the loss to Canada. I think there's a I think there's quite a few people within the federation that should be donating some wages for the lack of progress that we are seeing. It's time for accountability. It's time for a shift. We need progress in this country. We have this massive country. We are a continent-sized country. We have a, 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 a large population, a massive geographical setup. When you, when you look at north, south, east, west, it's huge. And it's going to take real leadership to leverage our resources and to do it well. Giving one company control of the pipeline, control of the access to the national team, one company control of, of professional soccer and the voting. It's not worked out well. It's going to continue to not work out well. And quite frankly, it is absurd Major League Soccer and U.S. Soccer are in bed together. 
and it's not working out. Our federation is not getting better. Our national teams are not getting better. And yet we keep telling families, like, if you want in, you got to go through Major League Soccer. I'm starting to think now when Don Garber said that we, that, that we meaning Major League Soccer, aim to be a league of choice, the league of choice by 2022, what he really meant was the league of choice if you want access. The league of choice if you want a seat at the table within U.S. soccer. The league of choice if you want favor from the federation. It's certainly not going to be the league of choice for top professional footballers. Not unless they're in their late 30s looking for a last payday. Because if you're serious about your football, you're not coming here at 25, 30. If you've got quality left to give, you're not coming and taking it easy. You're staying over in Europe and you're battling it out. Plain and simple. So, I mean, it's just absurd. This whole thing is absurd. The Federation, absurd. The lack of leadership, vision, absurd. We have a board of directors, officers, C-suite level leaders, CEO recently retired, the COO, whose brother's a national team coach. If you did an organizational audit of the federation at a board level as well as an executive level, and it was an objective look at where we are, I would guess that we may have a 10% holdover rate that 90% would be deemed unable or un, unwilling to perform their duties. I just don't think we do federation. I don't think we do that work of the federation very well. And it shows it's ridiculous that we don't have, if we're not the top league in the world, we should be battling for that. We have the infrastructure, we have the resources, the sport is popular, but Major League Soccer keeps getting getting thrust and forced down everyone's throats, and everyone's like, look, it doesn't taste good, we're not going to eat it, we don't want it, this is garbage, we're not going to watch it, not interested, I'll watch something else, is darts on TV, is like barrel jumping on TV. What else can I find? Let me look. I mean, this is the attitude of the public. You go and compare that to Liga MX. You go compare that to the Premier League. 
I mean, it's just not even close. And our 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 country wants to care. Our country wants to to do well, do right by the game. But our federation doesn't match that intensity, that desire. They figured out a way to make some money by hoarding the access and the power. And they're not interested in quality. They're interested in a payday and keeping control of the market. It's unfortunate. It's ridiculous. And it's time for the athlete council, the adult council, the professional council, the youth council to come together and say enough is enough. Let's make real progress. Let's hold these people accountable. They've got an opportunity in February, vice presidential election, just saying. We'll see what happens. Manchester City may not be able to cope with injury problems, says Pep Guardiola. Guardiola has questioned whether Manchester City can continue to cope with their lengthy injury list. The champions are without Laporte, Sané, Zinchenko, and Rodri. And Coach Guardiola has said the number of absentees is becoming a concern as they attempt to chase down league leaders Liverpool. The problem for the short term, we can handle it. For a long time, I don't know. Of course, against top, 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 top teams, when you don't have players playing in their own position, I don't know what's going to happen. It's amazing. He talks about their own position, positional play. Don't see that much in American soccer. Let's just go throw kids out and play random positions all the time. After beating Aston Villa 3-0 on Saturday, City are back in action against Southampton in the Carabao Cup on Tuesday. As well as the player sideline through injury, Guardiola will be without Fernandinho after the Brazil International was sent off against Villa. We don't have Fernandinho for the Carabao Cup. We have to play another one. We have an academy, and we have other solutions, and when the spirit is correct and you want to help, Always you go through. It is what it is. These situations exist in football, especially in one season, one long season. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, City faced Southampton twice in the span of five days this week with with uh, Southampton facing Manchester City at the Etihad Stadium in the league on Saturday. I don't think, uh, I don't know that Southampton is going to have enough, even even though I know they're going to come out angry and wanting to atone for that 9-0 defeat. But um, we'll see. We will see. So interesting, uh, interesting there, some comments from Pep Guardiola about Manchester City and uh, how the injuries are piling up. Um, and, and I think that's going to be, you know, a key point in this whole uh, season. Can Liverpool take advantage of their relative health 
and build a margin going forward. Um, going into this Man City match coming up here shortly uh, at Anfield, I think it's really crucial for Liverpool to to try to get the three points uh, at home. If they're able to get the three points, they could open up uh, possibly, uh, depending on results before then, if they if they maintain their current pace at, at a six point lead, that that mean they could, that means they could leave that that match with a nine point advantage over Manchester City, and I think that's important this early in the season. Certainly, nowhere near locking this thing up as we saw last season, but I do think it would go a long way in helping if Man City was able to close that down to three. Uh, that would be that would be a tough pill to swallow for Liverpool. Um, and, and I don't think that's something that obviously no team wants that wants to face that, but I think it's important for them to, to definitely try to expand that lead and build on it. So, um, that's going to be a big match coming up here. I think it's November the 10th, um, at Anfield, Manchester city comes, for a visit, and we'll see how that goes. That's going to be the match of the weekend, I think, and and a big one it is. Our sponsor this half hour is Charity Water. You can learn more about Charity Water at charitywater.org. They provide clean drinking water to people all over the world, and you could be and should be part of that story by going to charitywater.org. We'll be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. Now you could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens.
back into the show on this Monday morning, October the 28th. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, Picking up on an article that we were discussing uh, last week, we didn't get to finish, and we want to get back to that to finish out the show today. And that is an article uh, titled, U.S. Soccer is Neglecting Latino Talent, and It Shows. This is by Ishmael Kushkush, and we are working to try to get him on the show to talk more about this article soon. Um, picking up in, in that, that article as, uh, he was laying out, uh, just kind of a quick review up into, up into this point in the article that we were looking at, looking at where we are in terms of our structure, our system, our coaches, our players, and, uh, in, in really looking at, you know, the leadership of us soccer and how, you know, um, how unattached the leadership is from, from the issues. Another issue is the lack of enough Latino U.S. soccer licensed coaches with a cultural competence and skills to recruit talented players of color. U.S. soccer did not have an answer about the backgrounds of licensed coaches. There is a ceiling for Latino coaches, Mike Watola said. One obstacle, he explained, is that the required licenses to coach higher-level teams or national teams are costly and can take a long time to get. Right now, former U.S. men's national team star Tab Ramos is the only Latino coach for a U.S. men's national team youth system. And he's gone. So this article came out before Tab left for the Houston Dynamo of Major League Soccer. So we have none. A similar problem exists in the MLS. A study by Alianza de Football obtained by the nation found that for the 2018 season, 19 of the 23 MLS teams had a white head coach with just four teams headed by Latino coaches. Looking more broadly at the technical staffs, the picture is even more stark. According to Alianza's analysis, there were only three U.S.-born Latino and three U.S.-born black technical staff members in the entire league. That's less than 5% of all MLS technical staff, which includes assistant coaches, trainers, and other coaching staff. Hugo Perez said he believes that there are not enough decision makers in U.S. soccer who are prepared prepared and equipped to reach out to Latinos. And just want to interject here. Everything about this article and the things we've been discussing on this show today and since we launched this entire project a year ago with our short form podcast called Soccer Works, Everything that we look at, if you want to boil it down to one thing, like we have this issue, we have this issue, we have this issue. What is it? What's the common thread? Simple leadership, or in this case, poor leadership. Scouts, Perez argues, should be familiar with the communities they target and their issues of concern. For many Latinos, that might be citizenship and residency status. As the cases of Lisandro Claros Saravia and his brother Diego illustrate. Promising teenage players from Germantown, Maryland, 
The Claros Saravia brothers came to the United States from El Salvador as undocumented children. One of Lisandro's former coaches at Bethesda Soccer Club, a top youth club, described him as one of the best center backs in the country. In 2017, Lisandro won a soccer scholarship to play and attend Lewisburg College in North Carolina. But Lisandro and Diego arrived in the country in 2009, two years too late to qualify for the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, otherwise known as DACA, the Obama-era immigration policy that would have allowed them to receive work permits and deferments from deportation. Lisandro was originally granted a stay of removal in 2013, but it lasted only a year, and subsequent applications were denied. Though Immigration and Customs Enforcement, known as ICE, knew he and his brother were in the country illegally, they were considered a low priority by the Obama administration because of their clean records. When Lisandro informed the authorities that he was leaving for North Carolina during a routine check-in, ICE detained both Lisandro and Diego. Five days later, they were deported. It is stories like these that make many families with undocumented members hesitant to enroll their children in formal soccer programs. Former U.S. soccer president Alan Rothenberg said, When people ask me, when will the U.S. win the World Cup? I tell them, when we have comprehensive immigration reform. Now, that's a cop-out. Rothenberg's line right there. That's a cop-out. We will win the U.S. The U.S. will win the World Cup when the leadership of U.S. soccer gets serious about the game. Not when we have comprehensive immigration reform. You could have comprehensive immigration reform and you could have these kids like Lisandro and Diego eligible to play for the national team But do you have the right people picking them, finding them, scouting them, funding them with our pay-to-play system? Come on. That's a joke. Perez understands firsthand the challenges that young, talented players from immigrant communities face. He migrated to the United States from El Salvador with his family when he was 11 and got his start in the early 80s playing in the NASL, the now-defunct professional soccer league that predated Major League Soccer. He went on to play for the U.S. men's national team and participated in the 1984 Olympics and 1994 World Cup. Perez was a technical advisor and scout for U.S. soccer from 2008 to 2015, and he coached U.S. men's youth teams from 2012 to 2014. During his tenure, Perez said he presented a plan to U.S. soccer that sought to move away from what he described as a tentative style to a more attacking style of play. He wanted U.S. soccer to bring in young players from outside of the academy system and recruit talented players from immigrant leagues. To do this, every month for three years, he established free training centers to scout talent. Perez said that when he met with players and coaches from unaffiliated leagues, people would say, wow, we're glad you came because for years nobody has come. While recognizing that there are not enough scouts, Perez said that U.S. soccer is a responsibility to look outside of affiliated leagues. 
He also said his work as a scout was boosted by the fact that he spoke Spanish and was familiar with Latino culture. It helped him ease the concerns, answer questions, and persuade the parents of potential players to consider a future in American soccer. I've told this story before, but I used to have a very small free-to-play youth club. In a squad of 25 players, we had kids from 10 countries in every continent except Antarctica. We had kids that spoke multiple languages. I speak very little Spanish, enough to make a fool out of myself, but I try, and I'm not very good. But my entire technical staff were South Americans. So when I would try to go meet with families, we always went together. And I would start, and I would say a couple things, and then I would let one of my other coaches step in. And over time, we built trust. They knew I meant well. They knew our program meant well. And we wanted to do, to do right by their kids. And I've had clubs ask me, since then, how do, we, how do we get into those communities? How do we get them involved? You know, we can offer scholarships. And the thing I always try to explain to people, it's, it's so much more than just a scholarship. I mean, that's, that's kind of like how to start the conversation. But that's certainly not going to be enough to get some of them involved. You have to take into account some of the culture issues, some of the, the hesitancy that they're talking about here in the article about being undocumented. There's some hesitancy in regards to work schedules because some of them are working six, seven days a week. They can't get their kids to, 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 to training. They, you, they need help with transportation. All these issues pop up and we have to recognize as a country and U S soccer has got to get out of this arrogant mindset that if you're not in our preferred pathway, that we don't care about you. And that is exactly the mentality of the Federation. If you don't come through our Academy system and ultimately get into a major league soccer Academy, then you're no use to us. This is the mentality of the scouts. This is the mentality of the Federation. It's abhorrent. And it's why a full-scale leadership change is in order for us to fix these issues. That's a board level. That, that is executive level. To change the culture, we have to change the leadership. It is really bad. Among the promising players Paris discovered was Jonathan Gonzalez of Santa Rosa, California. A local coach recommended Gonzalez, and Perez invited the young player to one of his training sessions. His soccer IQ is advanced for his age. Very technical, excellent character, has excellent manners, very coachable, could play different positions, Perez said. Gonzalez was born in the U.S. to Mexican immigrants when he was 14, his performance at Alianza de Football Showcase in 2013 landed him offers to join the youth teams of 13 Liga Emeke teams. He would also start for a number of U.S. men's national teams, youth teams coached by Perez. 
In 2014, however, Perez's work coaching the USU 15 team came to an end. Speaking for the first time publicly on the topic, he said he was told more than once not to speak Spanish to Latino players and that his continued use of Spanish on the field may have contributed to him being let go. I did it a couple of times when I saw coaches from the opposite team so they wouldn't understand me. I felt I had the advantage if the other team didn't understand the directions I was giving. Perez said the order came from the top of U.S. soccer. Two sources who asked not to be named out of fear of retaliation confirmed that Perez spoke to them at the time about the request from U.S. soccer officials to not speak Spanish with players during matches or training. Perez said he ignored the request and that no one explained to him why there was an objection other than this was a U.S. national team. In fact, he said he had heard former coach Jurgen Klinsmann speak German to German-born American players during a senior U.S. men's national team training session. He said he never made an official complaint because he didn't think U.S. soccer would change their stance. Of everything that happened, that was the saddest thing. It made me feel unappreciated. In an emailed response, Booth denied, Neil Booth of U.S. Soccer denied that Perez's usage of Spanish contributed to his termination. There were other factors that contributed to the decision. Adding later, quote, this was a collaborative decision within U.S. Soccer. He stated that there is no policy against speaking Spanish or any other language, writing at times youth national team and even senior national team coaches will speak to players in other languages one-on-one, but the key is making sure that coaches are getting messages across to all their players in the most effective and efficient manner. Code word, speak English. In 2017, when neither the U.S. men's national team U-20 nor the senior team invited Gonzalez to their camps, even though he was playing professionally, he felt snubbed. U.S. soccer was not taking me seriously, he told me. A year later, he made the switch and played for Mexico, utilizing the FIFA rule that allows a dual national player to change nationality just once. Here we are sitting on all this talent and not using it, Gardner said, adding explicit language. That's worse than a scandal. It's an outrage. Some soccer analysts in America have suggested looking into the experiences of countries like France and Germany. Both national teams rebuilt their squads after episodes of failure by restructuring their scouting and youth programs to reach young talent in working class and immigrant areas. The results have been resoundingly successful, with Germany winning the World Cup in 2014 and France in 2018. This should have been done 20 years ago, Gardner said in frustration. In the meantime, more U.S.-born Latino players are finding their way to other countries. Adrian Gonzalez and Miguel Angel Avalos, two of the most promising footballers who participated in Alianza de Football Showcase in 2018, have been recruited by Mexican national youth teams. In in September 2019, Perez accepted a position as a scout for Mexico's youth teams. Perez insisted that he holds no grudges towards U.S. soccer, but said it must do a better job at reaching out to underserved communities of color. The U.S. men's national team, Perez said, can't wait for the next stars from immigrant communities to just pop up. U.S. soccer needs to go get them. U.S. soccer needs to get serious about soccer. 
And that starts with a change of the culture at the top, which is only going to happen with a change of leadership. Thanks for watching the show today. As always, you can watch on facebook.com forward slash W-R-K-M-N or at danielworkman.com. Catch me on Twitter or Instagram at danielworkman. We can get better. We need to get better. If we really, really want to get serious about becoming a great soccer country. The Federation's got to do a better job, plain and simple. We'll see you again tomorrow.